A new book contends that, from the start, the war on drugs targeted black, brown, and indigenous Americans who were already disadvantaged. Its authors, Akwasi Ousu Bempa and Tahira Rimatula, tell the stories of the people on the front lines of the war on drugs, the individuals and communities who are disproportionately harmed, sometimes beyond repair, the official and social forces working against them, and the victims, legal and political activists, and cannabis entrepreneurs who are fighting back. Waiting to Inhale, Cannabis Legalization and the Fight for Racial Justice is published by MIT Press and brings Tahira Rematula, who's off to our show today. Welcome. Thank you. Aren't attitudes and policies regarding cannabis shifting? Does the impact on minorities continue to be a problem nonetheless? It absolutely does uh, for someone like myself who's been in the cannabis industry since 2014. So really have been able to see as the professionalization of the industry has really developed over the last almost 10 years. Uh, we're still seeing similar trends to other industries, unfortunately, and also what has happened in the industry itself by you know, really marginalizing those minority communities, many of whom have been involved with what we call the legacy industry of cannabis. Although cannabis remains illegal in many states, haven't 22 of them, along with Washington, D.C., and Guam, acted to legalize recreational marijuana? Absolutely, and, and more states to come. New York State. Yeah, New York State has legalized as well, and we're seeing some of that policy roll out. And unfortunately, what has continued to happen is that even though there have been states like New York who've put social equity as a focal point of policy that has been developed, the execution... What do you mean by social equity? So focusing on communities that have been Hmm. impacted by the war on drugs, either themselves or their family members. So what New York, for example, has done is allowed for uh, those impacted to get a priority for getting retail licenses or other types of licenses. The challenge with that has been is that in the execution of it, it has delayed the larger rollout of the market, impacting not only those social equity applicants, but the larger market. But the opening of cannabis shops has become an issue in some minority neighborhoods. I know I see news reports on television all the time. Should a place be made in the growing legal cannabis market for black and underrepresented groups? Absolutely. And that is what a lot of the what we call social equity programs are focused on to be creating an established area for those uh, minority groups to actually be able to participate in a way that perhaps would not be possible without that type of programming and, and regulation. You know, it's expensive to start businesses. It's hard to navigate all of the the legal loopholes that you have to go through to get an application to be able to get it done at the state level, at the local level. And so there are still barriers, even if you move people to the front of the line. So a lot of support is needed on that side. How political is the situation? Is it another social and legal area where there's been some disagreement between Democratic and Republican politicians? There's definitely been conflicting views. However, we have seen uh, this become more and more of a bipartisan issue. On one side, 
side, there's the you know, social justice side of it. There are the human rights elements of it. On the other side, there's also taxing and jobs and the opportunity that can come by legalizing the industry, with which has allowed for a bit of a uniting force to come together. Well, President Biden said last October that he will issue pardons to everyone convicted of the federal crime of marijuana possession. But that's marijuana possession. Are we talking about a number of different things here? Well, with that one in particular, uh, what President Biden did, which was a great start, it affected about 6,500 people at the federal level. However, most crimes, cannabis possession crimes, are actually at the state level. So there's still about 30,000 to 40,000 people at the state level who are carrying cannabis felonies, sitting in jail for that, who did not receive pardons. So what President Biden also stated was that it's really on state governors to take on this issue uh, and follow follow the lead and, and do what is right to allow these people not only out of prison, but to clear their records because of the impact that a felony can have even once you're out of prison. Although cannabis use uh, among white, black, and brown people is similar, haven't ethnic minorities been arrested and sentenced at disproportionately higher rates? Absolutely. And the stats that we see that really led by uh, research that's done by the ACLU is that black communities in particular are four times more likely to be charged with a cannabis possession crime. or Even today? Even today. Um, and, and some of the data is a little stale. Obviously, it takes time uh, to put all of this information together. But we're still seeing higher rates of incarceration for black and brown people than we are for white populations. And their families usually have no influence, so their skin color makes them easy targets? Easy targets, but also when we think about the communities and how the war on drugs has really allowed for enforcement to focus on a lot of different communities. So not only racial communities, but lower socioeconomic communities. Communities. Uh, when you think of housing projects and things along those lines, the ability to overly police those areas and then, you know, look for other charges potentially as well. So it's poor people as along with racial minorities? Absolutely. And I would think that those are the people who are using marijuana the most. <laughs> No, I no? think it's pretty consistent rich, across populations. Rich people, pot parties? Rich people do, too. And when you think of other controlled substances, you know, cocaine, other you know, opium along those lines, it's not limited to lower income versus higher income populations. It's just the, the persecution of it is very concentrated on certain populations. So you say that even now, as, as white Americans capitalize on the legalization movement and there's a a booming cannabis industry. Many of their peers continue to suffer the consequences of, of systemic racism, policing, and, and failed drug policy the, of the sort that, that actually fueled the original crisis? Yeah, it continues today, and it's been shifting, but it's a it's a slower shift. And obviously, because we still don't have federal legalization, it can't be a one fell swoop effort to release people from prison, to expunge records, um, and to really start to right the wrongs of what the war on drugs did. At the state by state level, there have been policies put in place, structures put in place. You know, I mentioned New York, Illinois, California, all have attempted forms of social equity programs to come to the aid of this population, these populations to move them to the front of the line. However, there's no gold standard yet on what has actually been a 
the most impactful or productive program. And again, it's still early, but what we're trying to highlight in the book is that there's a lot of room for growth and opportunity there and that we have to put those priorities up front when we're going through legalization. Have you uh, looked at this? I suspect you haven't, but uh, whether the uh, abortion situation in many areas uh, is those same areas that are uh, are cracking down on abortion rights are the ones that would still have uh, limited rights for people who are engaging in cannabis use. Yeah, you probably could see it's parallel. I mean, we look at states like Texas, uh, which still has not legalized. Um, there are other states in the South and, and throughout mm-hmm. the country that have, you know, are sitting on that side. There might actually be more that have uh and I'm just saying this off the cuff, I haven't looked at the data that are, are focused on abortion than they are on cannabis, because at least with cannabis, there is the opportunity for job growth and, and taxing, which every state needs and probably is in favor of. What about this on the local level? Have some minority communities been damaged as a result of this? Of legalization? Yeah. No, no, of, of, of the, of the uh, imbalance in the way these, uh, these laws are, are prosecuted and legalization being just part of it. Definitely. When you look at the populations that have been largely prosecuted for possession or larger crimes as well, you know, certainly we're not saying that people who are sitting in, in jail for trafficking or for other you know, violent crimes should be uh, pardoned. But those who are convicted of, of possession, especially for those who are convicted of conf- uh, possession that is now legal wherever they were um, initially uh, charged. And so, especially along those lines, that's where the focus is really like we have to right those wrongs and let those people Expunging move on criminal life. records? Yes, exactly. Um, how much of an impact would expunging cannabis convictions have? We think it would be massive. People being let out out of jail still? Let out of jail, also their records being cleared, so even those who have been released from prison already, uh, because those convictions follow you throughout your life. You know, it limits a lot of rights for people even once they're out of prison. You can't vote, you can't get public aid, uh, education is very limited. So the opportunity post-incarceration is certainly not there, and that has a massive impact on it. Your co-author is Canadian. What about Canada, which has had a history of treating its indigenous people poorly? That's a big part of Aquasi's work and research looking at both black populations, brown populations, and the indigenous population, and how little has been done in the regulation around cannabis legalization in Canada Canada to empower or focus on the indigenous population. Uh, And so not dissimilar from what we're doing in the U.S. to the same populations uh, or similar populations has happened in Canada, even though they have federally legalized cannabis. So they're steps ahead of where the U.S. is, but still not focusing on the populations that deserve to be put to the front of the line or, you know, should have some form of reparation as this and other industries legalize and formalize. And what about people like you whose uh, family roots are from Asia? Have Asians been hit by this as well? Because Asians do take drugs. (laughs) Yes, they do. Um, in different ways, you know, I think for a lot of the uh, South Asian, East Asian countries, some of these controlled substances are normalized within society. And really, the 
the criminalization of a lot of these substances is only about 100 years old. This is kind of the anomaly, not something that was as consistent. However, a lot of the countries have taken probably a stronger stance against even you know minor amounts of cannabis or, or other such drugs. And so there's a probably a mix in those communities, you know, whereas my family's from Pakistan, cannabis is kind of everywhere, everywhere. nobody really pays any attention to it. People smoke pot all over the yeah, place. Yeah, it's, it's just not a, it's not an organized mm-hmm. industry, but it's not one that is really a heavy focus the way it is here. Well, you can grow it in your backyard. Probably, and pretty much anywhere. <laughs> My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Tahira Ramatula. She's co-author with Akwazi Awusu Bempa of Waiting to Inhale, Cannabis Legalization and the Fight for Racial Justice. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I suspect many of our listeners have strong opinions on this matter, so should we invite some calls? Absolutely. Okay, our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Should we be expunging criminal records for simple possession? How much of an impact would that have? We think it would have a massive impact, not only from... The, the opportunities that those people would have once they're out of prison, but for the people who are already out of prison who still continue to carry that around, expunging should be automatic. And it's also, it's a challenging process for a single individual to try to get their record expunged. So we need to make a simpler system, a straightforward system, an automatic one to allow for that. So if I'm applying for a job and I've had a conviction for selling marijuana or smoking marijuana, that's something that's going to follow me into uh, be, affect my job application and follow me the rest of my life? Absolutely. Yeah, it'll follow you everywhere. And it'll also limit you from doing a whole range of other things that people may not even think about. And so the, the disenfranchisement this enfranchising nature of how these felonies follow you around uh, impacts continues to impact these people and the communities that they're in. A reminder that uh, we invite your calls. Our number 212-209-2877 if you want to participate in this conversation. Uh, can you tell us some of the stories of the people and communities that have been disproportionately harmed, sometimes seemingly beyond repair? We give a range of stories in the book about people uh, who have been incarcerated or have been in communities that that have been. Um, You know, one story that we share is about Michael Thompson, who was charged in Michigan uh, for selling the equivalent of about three pounds of cannabis. And he was sentenced to 42 to 60 years. For three pounds of cannabis? For three pounds in a state that's now completely legal. Hmm. Uh, He served about 25 years of that (gasps) sentence and was pardoned uh, thanks to the, the governor of Michigan who allowed for that to happen and really, you know, supportive organizations like the Last Prisoner Project who pushed to get Michael Thompson out. But, you know, you think about that, that, he served 25 years of a 42 to 60 year sentence. And what happened wow. with that, not only did they initially bust him for three pounds of cannabis, but then they searched his home, which was not where the transaction even took place. And they found guns. 
And so they were able to charge him even further, even though the guns had nothing to do. They were legally owned. uh, They weren't used in the transaction at all. And so this is how... He didn't shoot up a school or anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't even have anything on him when the transaction took place. And so this is how communities can be targeted. Cannabis, we often say that, yes, the way that people refer to cannabis as a gateway drug that you know, leads to yeah. harder drugs. We say it's a gateway drug to the criminal justice system. <laughs> that is, people can start on one charge with cannabis possession and lead into all of these other things. And that is what got Michael Thompson such a long sentence. I mean, how could you, for selling three pounds of cannabis in out of your car, you got almost 60 years? That's insane. And had there not been the opportunity that to, to get him out, he would still be there today. And there are so many stories like that it's it's unbelievable, and I think a big reason why we wanted to write this book was so we could share these stories. So, so they're not just stats. They're real people that have been impacted by this, and not just a dozen or two dozen, tens of thousands. Well, I'm going to ask you for a few more, but right now, let's take some calls. Again, the number is 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Hello, yes, I had a question I was listening to you on my break. It's pretty fascinating, and I never really called in a radio station before. But um, Well, welcome to WBAI. Thank you. My take on this is that it's not that I'm, I'm not against pot per se. I'm just against the government controlling it. Look at the disaster in Oregon, um, Colorado, where, you know, people try to grow their own stuff and the government's telling you how much you can control. If it's a weed and it's supposed to be free in the ground with no patent like a pharmaceutical, why is the government in our butts every day telling us what to do? And this is the scary part. If we should be free to smoke pot, they should be free to smoke pot. You know, and I was never a big pot smoker. I've done it once or twice. I really don't smoke, but I kind of support people having the freedom if they're if they're responsible. But what scares me here about New York is due to the fact that it's overly left and it's pushing agendas of stuff that, you know, my thing is, you know, I'm a middle-of-the-road person, but it doesn't matter which side you look at, but the politics here is like they make pot where you must have it to survive. I mean, I look at the way the advertisements are and, you know, it's so good for you and everything. I'm just really on the fence of many things. And I think she brought up a good point. It is a gateway to the criminal justice system. But I think also is if we were free to grow it, I don't think people would overdo it. I think people just grow enough just to keep them ready, just to keep them happy and what they need medicinal for. And I don't think everyone's going to become a pothead and crash cars and become crazy over it like you hear people being scared of. But my thing is we just need to have less government control over it if we're such a free country and let the people and put the pot in the people's hands, let them make some money off it. That's just my thing is why are the wealthy people controlling the pot now like the pharmaceuticals and it's going to become like a pharmaceutical down the road? I don't know if the, if you guys agree or not. That's just my thing. And my well, friend in Jersey let's let you hear her respond. Yeah, thank you so much for your your comments and feedback. And so the the way that we see it is that there are a couple of different ways that the industry can evolve, and there are actually a couple different paths. So 
agree with you that it could become like a pharmaceutical and the, and really in, in higher potencies and very controlled elements. So when you do use it actually as medicine, as many people do, uh, you want to make sure that it's consistent and safe every single time. There are a lot of states that actually do have uh, home grow policies, so you can grow up to a certain number of plants at home. Um, but, you know, I, I don't disagree with you that you don't want the, the government all over it. However, right now, the way it sits, we need government to allow for this to move forward. We need policy in place that deschedules, reschedules cannabis so it's not a Schedule One narcotic that is treated the same as heroin. Uh, so we need these elements to change in order for people to have more access to it in a free, in more of a free way, in a, in a controlled and safe way. I think when we see what's happening right now with fentanyl and other opioids, we want to make sure that cannabis doesn't fall into a similar category. And quite frankly, if you let it run free, then we just have cartels, which is what we already have and want to avoid. Well, how many parallels do you see here with what happened with prohibition? Very similar parallels on that side in targeting certain communities as well. What but also in the case of prohibition and in the case of marijuana use, overindulgence can lead to problems. Absolutely. And I think overindulgence in all, many things outside of that can lead to problems. So everything needs to be Now more. you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we should have talked earlier. Uh, the the point of this is that to have limits and to have controls in place and to have testing and regulation to allow for safety. And that's the bigger point of regulation and, and legalization of cannabis. Our view is that it leads to safer products that are out there as the market continues to change, as there continues to be an underground market that we really want to bring that to light and allow people to participate in the industry and not to fall into the hands of cartels or to just fall into the hands of wealthy white business leaders. We want other people to actually be able to participate. Cola, you have anything you want to add before I go to the next call? Yes. Well, she brought up a good point. You know, you brought up a bit stupid. What if it leads to a patent and then one wealthy person gets to patent it and control it all himself? So saying government too much, it's all right to have government on it, but, you know, you give the government an inch, they'll take a mile from you. And that's the problem we have here. And we just have to figure out, yeah, we have a little government control, but it should also be the problem is if it gets too much government around your neck, it's going to lead to prohibition. And he brought up a good point. Where people going to end up going underground with it? So I, there's a kind of a catch-22. It's hard to determine how can we have a steady balance. But you bring up a lot of good points, and I look forward to reading the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling. Let's go to another call. Again, our number, 212-209-2877. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Uh, good. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in your uh, conversation. Uh, you say... Uh, in New York, they're trying to target people that already been convicted, uh, maybe uh, for this and sent up uh, and out, and they want to give them an opportunity. Where are they going to get this money? I mean, are they going to set up uh, uh, some type of credit union where these people can go and get monies to set up a business because it costs a lot of money to, to open up a store and to buy the product? And, 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 and advertise and so forth. Where are the people in, in, in our communities going to get this money? Yeah, it's a very, very good point that you bring up, and it's actually one of the challenges that we raise in the book about you can certainly move people to the front of the line, but then what? How do they have the capital, the resources, the infrastructure to 
build successful businesses. So one thing that New York State did put in when they passed regulation for an adult use market was to create a fund that would be partially funded by state and then capital raised in order to help these social equity applicants uh, support their businesses. Uh, it hasn't played out as it was initially intended. It was supposed to be a $200 million fund. Uh, it's still in process. But systems like that are what are trying to be established. There are a range of organizations that are also supporting the businesses, offering services um, you know, in exchange for equity or some type of fee to be participating in those licenses. Uh, and what New York has also done is allowed for some nonprofit organizations to also participate. So like the Doe Fund and some other organizations that have been able, Housing Works, they've been able to participate in that as well to help support the communities. It is absolutely not a seamless structure no. or process. Well, I'm assuming since we're only at the early stages, for example, New York State has just made it legal for adults 21 and older, which means that if you're 18 and you're caught smoking pot, you're still in trouble uh, mm -hmm. to possess up to three ounces of cannabis and up to 24 grams of concentrate cannabis for personal use. Right. So it's it'll be a misdemeanor or a fine, which is better than what it used to be, but it has been decriminalized, which is very important for communities not to be targeted the way that they used to be. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Yes. Hello. Hello. Um, hi. Can you hear me? I hear you well. Ah, good. Uh... I have a question about, uh, well, let's say it's banking, because uh, uh, a friend of mine was, uh, I wouldn't say celebratory, but uh, thinking that this was a pathway for him since he had a conviction over pot possession, I guess, and uh, he actually did time. Um, and what I wanted to know was, uh, you know, I, I, he, he was treating it like uh, a golden opportunity, let's say. The fact that maybe he could go into business because they, they have a, an accelerated pathway for those who've been convicted to be <coughs> legal pot dealers, we'll call them. And um, I was wondering if there's any mechanism being talked about to compel the banks to uh, actually decriminalize it themselves. I mean, they're very loath to take up, uh, you know, accounts, business accounts, let's say, for those who want to uh, trade in, in marijuana. Um, I, I think that that would be key to facilitating it because, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like the stodgy old business community represented by the banks is, is going to move on this issue, and we need to really make things change there as well. So maybe I, uh, I'll just listen in the radio and, and tune out right now, but I'm not tune out, but end the call. And well, thanks for your call. There. Yeah, thank you for okay. the question. Um, you know, one, just one element around that is that, so banking continues to be an issue. There's been something called the Safe Banking Act that has gone round and round and round for a couple of years in order to allow for banking uh, in, a, in a wider sense for the entire cannabis community. There are more regional local banks who do service the cannabis industry and even have started to provide loans. It's still very limited, but 
completely agree with you that the banking element is is and continues to be a challenge, even for some of the larger organizations, but particularly for small entrepreneurs, because not only bank accounts, but other services are very limited. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, this is Robert. It's a great program. I just wanted to mention that um, these Dragonian measures that have taken place in New York State, there are people that travel internationally, and there was a man that's just been convicted in Singapore of having a little more than one kilo of pot, and he is getting executed. <gasps> yep. uh, there, they, when you enter Singapore, where I lived for a short period of time, they stamp your passport that if you have any drugs at all, um, capital punishment is going to be delivered to you directly. So Sir Richard, Sir Richard Branson is actually appealing for this man to be released. Um, so anyway, just the international implications for people that travel could be pretty uh, horrendous. So what happens if you if uh, you land on an airport and they go through your luggage and they find marijuana in your suitcase? Well, I mean, Brittany Griner. Does it matter which you know, country? It, it, don't do it to Singapore, obviously. Definitely don't do it to Singapore, not to Russia. There, there are a whole range of countries. And even though it is legal within countries, you know, you'll see these signs as soon as you land at an airport in Canada that says, if you have cannabis... Don't bring it in here. Don't leave the country with it. And so it's still confined to country by country. And you do need to be very careful, particularly when you're going to countries that don't have any policy around it, but every country in general. Even in the United States, you're not supposed to go state to state with cannabis. That is technically illegal because it's not federally legal. So we need to be very aware. I think some people are under the assumption that you can just freely travel with it throughout the United States, but you can't. It's, that is technically illegal. Well, what happens if you uh, if you're stopped by the police and they find high levels of alcohol on you? Uh, that is a punishable crime. What about marijuana? If you're stoned on marijuana and you're driving erratically, it's it's a similar thing. There's no there are no great methods on how to test for it the same way that we have breathalyzers and, and limits on that. However, if you are driving under the influence of a whole range of things, right, opioids as well, you will be taken to prison or taken to jail and whatever the charges are for that. Uh, endangerment is still not okay, no matter what it is. Uh, and obviously we have a lot of experience as a country with alcohol and we've seen some of that with cannabis as well, um, though not as much as we continue to see with alcohol. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Have you ever met that funny briefer man? Have you ever met that funny briefer man? If he says it's from China, tell you South Carolina, and you know you're talking to that briefer man. Have you ever met funny briefer man? Have you ever met funny briefer man? If he says walk the ocean, and it's time he takes notice, and no. Talk to people, man. We're back with Tahira 
Rematula, who is co-author with Akwazi Owusu Bempa of Waiting to Inhale, Cannabis Legalization and the Fight for Racial Justice, published by MIT Press. And we are inviting your calls at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Some of the stories you tell in, in this book are rather horrifying. Uh, people being punished really harshly uh, for what would seem to be rather minor offenses. Uh, and we've been talking about race as an issue here. Is that a factor? Are you more likely, were you more likely to get a really harsh sentence if you were uh, a person of color who was arrested on a drug charge? Yes. Yeah, the simple answer is sadly yes, whether it's a um, j- Definitely targeted towards black populations, brown populations. You know, the the stigma has always been there. The stereotype has been there. We have built that into regulation and and execution of the war on drugs. Um, And that has largely, was created largely to target these communities. So the sentences are harsher. The communities that they're coming out of um, are less resourced. And so, you know, we've seen it in in not just cannabis crimes, but other ones. If you are well-resourced you probably have more of an opportunity to get a lighter sentence. I mean, that's that's unfortunately the sad truth that we face. Even even if you're a person of color, if you're a wealthy person of color, you're going to get a lighter sentence than if you're some poor kid. It just depends on what resources do you have, you know, what legal mm-hmm. services, what other what opportunities. What lawyer you can yeah, hire. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a massive expense. Most of them use some type of a public defender or somebody assigned to them. But unfortunately, that is a big factor in it on who can you hire to defend you in order to get through this process? Now, I, I mentioned earlier that there are the, the news stories about the opening of cannabis shops in some minority neighborhoods that seem to be causing problems. Why? Uh, is it a matter of too many of them popping up? Well, it's also a, probably a factor around who are the owners of those retail locations and are you focused on, is it people from the community who are actually able to open those retail locations, or is it people really outside of the community, namely, you know, white business owners versus the actual population that's there, be it a black community, a Latino community? You would rather have your own community there servicing where they already have, you know, the the legacy market has been servicing that population. So ideally, you'd want those populations to also participate and be part of But it's of also community. location. For example, there was a concern about the opening of a shop near the Apollo Theater mm-hmm. on 125th Street. I guess the concern was that you just have too many stone people going to, <laughs> to a live performance. You know, it's, but we say that, uh, I mean, we laugh about it because... The thing is, cannabis is out there. Whether you're getting stoned from buying it from a dispensary that's close to the Apollo Theater or you got it from somebody else, if you're planning on doing it, you're, you're going to do it, wherever it is. People don't have issue with where liquor stores are, mm-hmm. you think. But the assumption is not that, oh, if you have a liquor store there, then you're getting wasted before you're going to a theater, right? So it's it's not different from that. These are locations based on where there's good retail opportunity and where there are populations. Usually when we open the phones, we wind up getting a mix of male and female calls. But it's all men so far. <laughs> Is that a factor? There are definitely, I think, on the on the surface, more 
male consumers who are actually going to dispensaries, but we're seeing this shift. You know, the, when you look at how consumption has changed, uh, it's starting to shift more towards women as well and being more of an even split. But Traditionally, there have been more male consumers of cannabis, but now as the form factor changes, so you have beverages, you have edibles, you have smaller doses that are more suitable for social situations, or you know, people will say that the cannabis that they used to consume 30, 40 years ago was much more accessible and lighter than what's available now. But what we're seeing is that there's just a whole range of products, and that has attracted- I mean, foods and stuff. In exactly. the old days, it used to be just smoked Flour. a reefer. Yeah, or, or you ate a brownie. Or smoked a pot. <laughs> you know? And now we have gummies, we have topicals, we have tinctures, you have beverages. Uh, beverage is a really interesting category because it is so social. Uh, so it really adds into that factor as well that you can have that. Uh, you have anything from one milligram to 20 milligrams. And that dosing is really important to help uh, maintain a different customer base. Let's take some more calls. Again, our number 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Hello, is that me? Yes, you. <laughs> Hi, uh, how are you? Uh, great program. Thank you. Great guests. Uh, a couple of things that I just, I normally wouldn't call, but uh, they actually, unless I'm dreaming, they actually executed that guy. They hung him. The one, the fellow you're talking about. So In Singapore. That, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, so, I, horrifying. Not that they're gonna, they did. Yeah. Um, for for 2.2 pounds, which is what a kilogram is. Uh, unbelievable. But unbelievable. that's the world we live in. Over there, it's like, don't play. Don't play with the, fe- with, the with the system, that's for sure. Yeah. And, yeah, it's so draconian. Great topics. You know, how it's ruined so many lives, this cannabis. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And, uh, you know, right into our criminal justice system. And it's still going on. State by state. We don't have a federal you know, they haven't taken it down. So what? Schedule what? What a joke it is. You know what I'm saying? It's unbelievable, the, the world we live in. Anyway, I like listening to your program from time to time. Thank you for... Uh, Why just time to, to time? What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm Stephen. I'll call again. Thanks, Stephen. Meanwhile, we have just been informed that... The execution was just a few hours ago, five hours ago? Uh, yeah, according to some several uh, news presses, it, it happened literally just hours ago. Wow. Let's take another call. Again, our number 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the, on the air. Hello? Hello, Leonard? Yes. Nice to hear you on this uh, relatively new radio station for you. I used to listen to you on the other station. Well, actually, I, I started to... on BAI in 1978. Mm. Well, that's before I was listening to the other station. That was a long time ago. And then I went to WMYC, and now I'm yeah. back at BAI, my original home. I on WMYC, and I enjoyed your show. Okay. I wanted to push back on, the, on you know, expunging the records, because these people, when it was illegal, they knew it was illegal. They chose to break the law, they took a risk, they gambled, and they lost. Right? This isn't something that somebody has to have. This isn't Le Mis. This isn't Jean Valjean stealing a loaf of bread because somebody was starving and then Inspector Javert chasing him for 20 years, right? Look, I, I see the I see both sides of the equation there, but 
when you think about or when you actually look at how the history, how cannabis was used to actually persecute these communities, uh, I, I don't agree that expunging is is something that is, you know, so out of the norm. I think trafficking, yes, but a dime bag, you know, $20, a joint. That's what people actually were facing and are, are still sitting in prison for, some of them serving life sentences. That is not just to me. That is not fair to me. That doesn't seem like it's something that we ever should have allowed to be illegal and then to throw people in jail for, jail for years and years of their life. I, I don't think that that is a fair well, policy. Well, so, so you see a difference between somebody who sells large quantities and somebody who is just... Possessing using it, it recre- yeah. recreationally or sharing it with other people and charging them a little bit for joints and things like that. When we think about, I mean, Leonard, you brought up alcohol prohibition. This isn't that different. With those people who were, you know, bootleggers back then had been charged, you would expect expungent. I, I would assume that everybody would expect that. So why is this any different? Well, those sentences might be excessive, but that's a problem of the criminal justice system. It's not, we shouldn't say they violated the law, they knew, and now let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's, you know, because that's a question of their judgment, too. And on the other hand, we have bigger problems than that. And we've got bigger drug problems than that going on now. We've got methamphetamine, we've got crack, we've got fentanyl, we've got all this other stuff. We've got drug cartels that used to be millionaires, now they're billionaires. This is the problem that's really going to eat us up. Maybe you should be focusing your attention on that. But on that's the that's the problem. whole point of this is like cannabis legalization and, and removing the, the stigma around it and the persecution of it actually allows for more focus by law enforcement agencies on the things that we really need to be focusing on. That's part of our argument. I, I completely agree with you. Let's focus there and not waste time, money, resources, waste people's lives on persecuting cannabis. It sh- this and You're right. It is a criminal justice problem. We made the wrong decisions. We made the wrong decisions a very long time ago, and those have just torn apart communities for for decades. And now we have to fix it. But the way to fix that is legalization and letting people get on with their lives and then putting resources where we really need them, which we're not doing because everybody is so stretched thin and we don't have the money to do it. Well, caller, what were your feelings? What are your feelings about prohibition? Obviously, you weren't around at the time, but do you think that people who uh, sold a bottle of booze or beer uh, at that time, knowing that it was a crime, should have gone to jail? Well, it had been legal and it wasn't legal. I mean, marijuana or cannabis or whatever you want to call it wasn't ever really legal here. That's not true. It was actually legal in the, you know, up until the 1930s. It was used openly and freely, and it was a medicine. It was used, hemp was used for paper. Well, this it is all. Didn't have, it ahead. didn't have the penetration in our society that alcohol is. Alcohol is absolutely everywhere except in dry counties where people drink secretly. Okay, you've made your point. Thank you so much for your call. And BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yes, hi. Yeah, that was a good answer to that gentleman. He answered it himself. Yes, fentanyl is a problem. Marijuana hasn't really been, except the way it's been treated by the law. And for people to be making millions off of the industry, and always have, and yet others in jail, it makes absolute no sense. But uh, I don't know if I missed it, if you said it earlier, but people who have criminal backgrounds for that, how would someone without capital even consider this? And the other thing is about these dispensaries, 
I understand that it's supposed to be better quality stuff, but it's like five times more money than the neighborhood place, which are opening up all over. So it's still out of the reach for many. So just like your responses on that. Yeah, thank you for bringing those points up. Uh, the the taxation element and the increase in pricing when you go through dispensaries is a challenge. We absolutely recognize that, and it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. There's an element of, you know, you know that it's consistent, you know that it's tested, you know that there's quality around that. On the other side of it, the pricing really prices people out. So there are a couple of, you know, with further legalization, we hope that pricing can decrease so it is more accessible, and then on the other side of it, that it can be treated as a medicine in, in certain regards and actually covered by insurance. So it is more accessible, particularly for the populations who actually do utilize it as medicine. And there's a whole range of people it's who do. It's too expensive. It's, it's too expensive, exactly. For, especially if you're somebody who is a, a daily consumer for you know whatever <laughs> reason it is, it's too expensive. And so the challenge that we continue to face in, in, with legalization is that the pricing becomes too high and then people actually go back to the illegal market if they right. did participate there. Or they're seeing it so much more widely available like you do in New York through the illegal market that they feel like, oh, it must be just as safe. And so there's, I'm not giving a, here's the answer to that. We recognize that problem as, uh, as well. And, and by learning from each state, we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the best way that we can actually do this to make it a balance? We're not there yet, but agree that the pricing is too high. Thank you so much for your call. I, I was thinking about the addiction factor. Um, alcoholism is a problem. Some of the uh, other drugs that are still illegal, the opiates, for example, are illegal. But is, are, is cannabis addictive? Uh, I don't remember it being we haven't seen studies that say that it is addictive to the the way that a lot of other things are. In fact, we've seen studies, actually, this is a, a, a Pew research uh, that shows that caffeine and sugar can actually be more addictive mm -hmm. than cannabis. Now, my view is that too much of anything is just not a good thing, and so it's all about Measure, well, I have, have some exceptions, <laughs> but we're not going to talk about them on the air. Well, that's not today's topic. <laughs> um, but I think that what we, you know, uh, an important thing to know is that there haven't been any deaths reported from cannabis overdosing or overconsumption. There have been things that have been done that have led to death when somebody has been utilizing cannabis, uh, but not as a, as a result the same way we see with opioids and alcohol. And so that is something important to understand. On the other side, it is something that does have a psychoactive effect. It does impact your brain. So we need to be aware of that. We need to do more research and we need to understand what are those longer term effects. Until we legalize it and allow it to be researched properly, we're not going to have that information. Should we take another call? BAI, you're on the air. All right, let me turn down my radio. Okay. I think you just said the magic word, Leonard, the addiction factor. Um, legality is one thing, but uh, if I, I just may give a brief analogy here. I walk the dog an hour a morning. Every time I pass a telephone pole up here in Rockland County, I see a little pile of 50-milliliter bottles of cinnamon whiskey. And, uh, you know, 50, you know, uh, Five or six bottles of that. If you are an addictive personality, that's what's going to happen. Whether it's cannabis or whiskey, um, you know. And um, I don't know what you think about that, or your guest thinks about it. But, uh, addiction is in the person. How you satisfy the addiction can vary. Well, it took me almost a year to finally feel that I was totally free of cigarettes. 
Uh, mm. That was that was a oh, long Lord, time of not smoking and fighting off the desire. Uh, I I don't know if people who smoke pot have that same kind of problem. The problem, I mean, I you know, I think. Thank you for your comment. I think addiction is in part personalities. You know, people can find a range of things to be addicted to, uh, but there are qualities in the substance itself that can also lead to that, and that is one element in cannabis that we haven't seen. In the same way, even you know, nicotine. Uh, highly much more addictive than we've seen in cannabis and again i i lean on data and and research and want more of it to be able to show the longer term effects but i agree that addiction is something that also people can satisfy in a whole range of ways my guess is tahira rimbatula her book written with akwazi owusu bimpa is waiting to inhale cannabis legalization and the fight for racial justice published by mit press and we are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. Oh, we don't have any more calls. Okay. Uh, Guess I'm, it's just us. I'm, I'm so addicted to, to getting calls during segments like this. <laughs> so that's an so, addiction. So I'm sure there are all sorts of things that, you, well, this is a, a wonderful book, and you've got lots of stuff in it. Uh, what are some of the other things that you think are important for us to know? Well, three things that we highlight in the book is that the way to move forward, you know, we've talked quite a bit about expungement, but we think that focusing on the communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs is something that needs to, uh, for lack of better phrasing, baked into regulation that comes out no matter what level it is. Because if you don't start with it from the beginning, it's very difficult to then incorporate it later. And quite frankly, we don't think people will care enough to if you start it a couple of years after legalization has happened. So we talk about, obviously, we've talked a lot about expungement. Um, The other element is creating job opportunities and economic empowerment for those populations that have impacted by the war on drugs. Uh, And not just saying, like, you're going to have a certain number of licenses go somewhere, but also that... uh, uh, you know, there's room at the top. The leadership, there is opportunity for populations to succeed there. And then third is reinvesting into the communities, either using tax revenue or other resources. I think we have time to sneak two more calls in, but right. we have to make them quick. BAI, you're on the air. Hi. Go ahead. Uh, it, I believe uh, marijuana was decriminalized in New York in 1978. And due to a loophole in the law and a conspiracy among judges, prosecutors, and defense lawyers, many people were found guilty of using marijuana because of a loophole that said you couldn't smoke it in the in public. Many of my former students were uh, incarcerated because of this loophole. Now they were juveniles, but some, but there are a lot of adults who never should have been convicted of using marijuana because it was decriminalized, I believe, in 1978. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you hear her? I, I, I'm not sure on the date, but I will, I will trust your knowledge on that. Um, but the element around public is, I think, the bigger factor because you could, you know, law enforcement groups could say, oh, the person was in public, and now you see it. It's it's freely utilized in public. So, so that's as, a, as long as you smoked it in your living room or your bedroom, it was okay. I guess so, but I mean, I think there were still communities that were, you know, police would enter homes right. because they're saying right. that um, right. that you know there's a reason or that there's a, a way that they could say that there is. But we're hearing that you are you are correct. Re- in Reggie, the dates you want to, to fill us in on that, my engineer? Yeah. So real briefly, in 1977, New York decriminalization 
possession of 25 grams or seventh eighth ounce or less of marijuana to an infraction with a $100 fine equivalent to $450 in 2021. So he was right. Absolutely. Well, thank let's you for sneak, that information. Let's sneak one more call in. We have another call? Yeah. Okay, let's try to sneak another call in. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon, and this is a good segue from your last call and last question. Um, I'm, I, I'm all for the legalization. I don't particularly partake in it, in it um, but it's, it's all over, the, you know, the, the, it's the, the smell all over the street of Manhattan or New York is, is becoming a problem. I mean, we just dealt with cigarettes, and now everywhere you walk, every elevator you go on, everywhere, people are complaining about it in their apartments, of just just the smell. I mean, I don't mind. Is there a way to, to segue it into more edibles or, or drinks, as you said before, or, or is there some way we could deal with that issue? So the challenge, and and thank you for bringing that up, the challenge is actually that most of what you are smelling all over the place is because there's a prevalence now of illegal dispensaries and distributors because the legal market has taken just so long to be able to come come to fruition. So we only have, we have, I think, six or seven dispensaries that are licensed by New York State that are open in the state right now, which is not very many at all. Most of those are actually in New York City. But... What you, what a lot of people see and don't realize is that there are actually fourteen to fifteen hundred illegal dispensaries mm-hmm. that have sprouted up because of this lack of enforcement that was intended for good reasons to stop targeting communities. But what has happened is that these illegal dispensaries and other uh, people are selling it more freely, and so it is everywhere. And so there is an effort now to try to curb that to move it more towards the legal market. I think once it's actually more in the legal market, we will see a difference, um, and there probably will be some some structure around, you know, smoking in public the way that we do with cigarettes as well. Thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Tahira Rematula, who is co-author with Akwasi Ausu Bempa of Waiting to Inhale, Cannabis Legalization, the Fight for Racial Justice, published by MIT Press. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of the people who called in. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. Let's give in the number 2 WBAI. Org. And BAI right now is going through a rough time. We are, uh, fi- because of COVID and the pandemic, everything has changed, and we've been finding it hard to pay some of our bills. So we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. 
And uh, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lope right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Waiting to Inhale, co-authored by today's guest, Tahira Rimatula. So give us a call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online give to give to WBAI.org. $50 or more, you get the book. Maybe you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thanks with a BAI buddy tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more, $10, $15, $20, $25. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We are completely free speech radio. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Andrew Boyd discussing his new book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. We'll see you then. Thank you.